I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. I know everyone thinks we're these scary creatures who committed these horrible crimes. But we did what we had to do. I need your help with the Manson girls over in the special security unit. Good morning, ladies. I'd like you to meet Carlene Faith. Hi, Carlene. What is it you can really do for them? I just want to remind them who they were before they ever met Charles Manson. It's like being home again. The family before the crimes. When everything was about love. The summer of Manson is upon us. Ahead of the 50th anniversary of the murders masterminded by Charles Manson, a wave of content is coming our way. The grisly slayings of eight people, including the very pregnant actress Sharon Tate, cast a dark shadow over the romantic adventure of the 1960s counterculture, fascinating and haunting us to this day. Out now in theaters is Charlie Says, the second of a trio of Manson-related films scheduled for release this year. Rather than focus on the violence, Charlie Says is a sensitive, psychological portrait of three of Charlie's girls, as they descend into the madness of Manson's world, and with the help of a grad student, go through a deprogramming process in prison. I talk with the movie's director, Mary Heron, and writer, Guinevere Turner, the filmmakers also behind American Psycho. Heron and Turner discuss their efforts to capture the domestic abuse and manipulation within the Manson family, along with the sexism of their freewheeling communal life. But first, I chat with critic and self-described Manson head Katie Walsh, who reviewed the film for The Times and who calls Charlie Says a deeply feminist film that captures the toxic masculinity and sexual manipulation practiced by Charles Manson. Let's listen in. What do we have here? I'm Leslie. I think we should let her stay. You're going to be Lulu. We don't talk about our pasts. Our lives started when we met Charlie. Before we get to my conversation with director Mary Heron and writer Guinevere Turner, I'm joined by critic Katie Walsh to help set up our conversation about Charlie Says. Katie, this is your first time on The Real. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And so Katie is an intrepid freelance critic here in Los Angeles who does a lot of reviews for us at the Los Angeles Times. And she wrote the review of Charlie Says, which is the story somewhat of Charles Manson, but more specifically, it's the story of Lizzie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins when they're in prison and the sort of work that they do with a therapist named Carlene Faith to sort of get over, in some ways, the the programming that they went through as they were part of the Manson family. And so, Katie, tell me a little bit about your impressions of the movie. What do you make of it? Yeah, I really loved this movie. I think it shows an aspect of the Manson story that we've never seen before, which is obviously the deprogramming aspect of it. And I don't think a lot of people realize that the Manson girls were so programmed that even for years afterwards when they were in prison, they were still believing that he was speaking to them and following bizarre orders that they brought out of thin air. And I think this film shows a real empathetic portrait, especially of Carlene Faith, who sort of uses her feminism and her 
women's studies training, and she's a grad student at the time, just to pull these women out of this fog and show that they might have been perpetrators of this horrible crime, the Tate-LaBianca murders, but they were really Charlie Manson's first victims because he abused them, he emotionally manipulated them, and he just turned them into something that they completely were not. So I think that it's a really not sensationalized version of the Manson story. It's not tabloidy. It's not exploitative in terms of violence, although there is some extreme imagery here and there. But it's really like a psychological and emotional portrait of this story. And I think that that's not something we see often, especially with such a sensationalized murder story. And is it surprising to you that even at this point, and considering how many books and movies and podcasts, like how much information there is about the world of Charles Manson out there, there's still fresh territory. There's still new ways of approaching the story and that telling the story from the perspective of the girls and really centering their story. It's interesting that's kind of been like the new frontier of Mansonology over the past few years. You just have to wonder how. How did this happen? How did these women do these acts? It's sort of like Nazi guards. Like, how did these people commit these heinous acts? And in this case, it's like... Manson was able to do what he did because of the political and cultural climate at the time of hippies, free love, drugs, sex, rock and roll. And this film foregrounds his rock and roll dreams as he's trying to get a record deal with Terry Melcher, which was sort of roiling the events that led to the murders. I won't say that it is what sparked the murders, but it is. it was a motivating factor. But he preyed on young, vulnerable women who were leaving their families, running away from home, felt isolated, were sort of buying into this like sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle. And he really exploited the hippie movement to his own sociopathic ends. And if you know anything about Charles Manson, you know that when he was in prison in Oregon, he studied Scientology and he read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he also learned the techniques of pimping from pimps in prison. So he sort of used all of this along with his own psychopathic manipulations that were present from childhood and turned it into his own brand of emotional manipulation. And I think that it is important to see how this works because people still do this. I know the era of cults is kind of 70s cults is kind of over, but there's still cults happening today. There was the Nexium cult and there was a recent article in New York Magazine about a guru-like figure at Sarah Lawrence, a father of a student who manipulated a whole group of young students and kind of ruined their lives. I mean, it happens even in interpersonal relationships. Think of Dirty John. Dirty John is the same as Charles Manson. He just had one victim at a time rather than a harem. So I think there is more territory to talk about. It's fascinating. Like, it's interesting that this is coming from Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, Mm -hmm. who previously collaborated on American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, and now with Charlie Says. And one thing I am so taken with, with thinking about these three films together, is every one of them is a period film that also spoke to, like, the specifics of, like, the moment in which it was coming out. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, like, what for you does Charlie Says and the way that they tell this story have to say to kind of, like, our cultural now? I think sometimes it's easy for us to look back on, oh, the hippies, quaint, everyone was just caught up in the moment. But if we don't understand history, we're doomed to repeat it. And so while there was this very specific cultural forces that enabled this to happen in August of 1969, and I think that the world fundamentally changed, 
after the events of that. People started locking their doors, actually, for once. I do think that there are always going to be psychopaths and scammers and people who will exploit others. And I think that exploiting women sexually, exploiting their labor, whether it be like physical or emotional labor, that that isn't going away. You know, people still want to control women and their sexuality and use their bodies and use love and pleasure as a means of control. And I think that this film actually shows that in such an interesting way because Matt Smith, who plays Charles Manson... Matt Smith, of course, also played Prince Philip on the first two seasons of The Crown. He's also one of the doctors on Doctor Who. But they really show the seduction aspect of it and the abuse, uh, whether it's emotional abuse or physical abuse that he levies against the women. And those moments are really terrifying. But also you see that he's offering them love and he's offering them pleasure. That is what keeps them coming back. And I mentioned Dirty John before, but like you listen to that podcast or you read that article and you say, how could this woman be with this man? Like so many red flags. And then you hear her say, he made me feel really good. And... So when you think about something like a Dirty John or even like any other types of emotional manipulators and scammers, they're using the same techniques. It's the same pattern. It's like love bombing and pleasure and making you feel really good, whether that's loved and cared for and safe. And then that's balanced against the abuse and the psychological manipulation. So I think more people need to know about it because otherwise these people just walk around unchecked (laughs) and they should be checked. And one scene in the movie when Charles Manson, he goes up to this Cielo Drive house in Benedict Canyon. He's looking for Terry Melcher, the famous record producer and son of Doris Day. But he meets instead Sharon Tate. She answers the door and they have this very unsettling interaction in the doorway there. Tell me kind of maybe what that scene sort of felt like to you and and how you feel about Matt Smith's performance as, as Charles Manson. You know, he doesn't do the manic, kooky, wild Charlie Manson thing that we can come to expect from some depictions of Charles Manson and even from his behavior in the courtroom that we've seen in documentaries. He's a little bit more sedate, and I think that that is appropriate for this particular film. When he meets Sharon Tate at the door, he is making very intense eye contact. So he asks if Terry Melcher is there. She tells him that Terry doesn't live there anymore, that he moved to Malibu. But he has locked eyes with her in a way that she starts to invite him in to the party. And you're just like, no, 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 no. He's so scary. And and also we know where this is going to end. Not that night, but the next night. But it is like you mentioned like a vampire. Like, is she going to invite him in? And it's almost like he's glamoring her like on true blood with his eyes, like hypnotizing her with his eyes. So even for someone as famous and beautiful and powerful and loved as Sharon Tate was, she starts to get sucked into it. And so you can understand why these honestly, teenage girls who were basically runaways would get drawn in and do every bidding of this man, no matter what. It is a powerful moment to just show the effect that he has on people. And then how did you feel about the casting of the three Manson girls? It's um, the actresses Hannah Murray, Sosie Bacon, and then Marianne Rendon are playing the Manson girls in prison. How did you feel about their performances? Maybe Hannah Murray in particular, who also plays Gilly on Game of Thrones? The movie kind of centers the story of Leslie Van Houten. I thought she was incredible. I really admire Hannah Murray. I think she's a really great, brave, unflinchingly open actress. And she 
was perfect as Leslie. When I first saw her on screen, I thought, oh, she's playing Susan. And then I realized she was playing Leslie. So it took me a, a moment to reorient. But then she's just so perfect as Leslie. She's the one person who's a little bit hesitant. She questions him at times. And there's an opportunity for her to leave at one point and she doesn't take it. And when I think of Leslie Van Houten, I, I have a lot of empathy for her. She actually didn't murder anyone. She was at the scene and she did stab a body, but she wasn't a murderer. I think she's up for parole and, and Gavin Newsom needs to approve it. And she was just in such a state of mind out in La La Land that they were half starved. They were addled on LSD. He was telling them all of this crazy rhetoric about the bottomless pit and they were going to sprout wings and become magical creatures and elves after the race war. And like Leslie believed that for so long. And I think Hannah Murray gives a performance that is a little bit more grounded than you might expect. And she does tap into a lot of the darkness, though. There's a really dark scene at the LaBianca house where she unleashes a lot of rage, frustration. And at the same time, she does really convey that sense of break with reality that they all experienced. And it took a long time for them to come back from. So I think Hannah's amazing. I also really liked Sosie Bacon. I thought she was great. I thought all of the girls were really amazing. The casting was spot on. I thought Kaylee Carter, who was in Private Life, she was amazing in Private Life. And she is absolutely the only person who could have ever played Squeaky From. What I really appreciate about this film is that like for a Manson head like me, they get the details right. And they're not totally telling the whole, there's not the helter-skelter story, of, but there's little layers of details throughout that shows that they know the story really well. So they really got the casting right on all of the girls. And, and I appreciated the attention to detail just to the story itself. And then Merritt Weaver as Carlene Faith. I mean, one of the things that I think is really surprising in the movie is how much screen time is given over to these essentially therapy sessions that Carlene Faith has with the three Manson girls. And there's like a stillness to those scenes, mm -hmm. but also this real kind of emotional charge that's interesting. And tell me a little bit about how you felt about kind of the Merritt Weaver's performance and the way that they kind of weave those like therapy sessions into the story. The way I felt about Merritt Weaver's performance was that I was, oh, I want her to be my therapist. <laughs> she was so warm and kind and just understanding and non-judgmental of the women. And the way she gives them books about battered wives or the sisterhood or our bodies ourselves and just sort of says, hey, maybe you should read this and, and check it out. And she's not pushing anything too heavily on them, but she just exposes them to the things that they need to sort of come to their own realization because... I think everyone knows you can't force someone to change their mind, but you can give them the tools to do that on their own. So I thought that was a really lovely way that they portrayed those therapy sessions. And ultimately, she's a prison educator, but they're just sitting on the floor talking about their lives. And I think just being present with them was what they needed to heal. And here's a clip from the film when Merritt Weaver, who plays Carlene Faith, hands out copies of the feminist texts, Our Bodies, Ourselves, and The Power of the Sisterhood to Manson's Girls. Something for you to take a look at for next week. The Bible is the only book Charlie let us have around. Charlie says that authors are evil, trying to play mind tricks on the reader. So do you feel like you'd be doing something bad by studying with me? Because if you are going to do these classes with me, you're going to have to read books. I'm also going to leave a copy of this. Have any of you read it? 
This book changed my life. It looks like it could be interesting. I'm thinking about Mary Heron and American Psycho and how that film has taken on such a life of its own. The movie was not that well-received when it initially came out. As Mary likes to point out, it did not make any critics' top 10 <laughs> list. It really didn't win any kind of like year-end prizes or anything. Knowing now what the reputation of the movie is, what a cultural cachet is, how do you feel knowing that like it wasn't so well-received when it first came out? We always risk getting it wrong, you know? And I'm sure I'm going to look back on my Rotten Tomato scores at some point and be like, eh, I don't know if I quite nailed it on that one, but we do what we can with the time that we have in the context that we have. Film criticism is so subjective and honestly, it can hinge on the context in which you see it. But I also think American Psycho is a really complex film. I think it became this cultural touchstone for a lot of young men who sort of lionized Patrick Bateman. And it's like, no, that's not what this movie is doing. Like this movie is villainizing him. And you need to be looking at how it's like a very dark satire it's such a subtle movie that some audiences don't necessarily get that. And it's funny to call American Psycho a subtle movie because it's not subtle at all, but she doesn't overwhelm you with messaging in her films. She just sort of shows you and then lets you come to your own conclusions. And I think that that is kind of also happening again with Charlie Says, which doesn't have great reviews, but I'm looking at, at the Rotten Tomato score saying like, People just don't get this. And that is okay because everyone comes at it from a different perspective. I obviously come at it from my own personal perspective. and But I feel like really confident in saying like, this movie is deeply misunderstood and kind of a masterpiece. <laughs> but that's also kind of cool to make art that's challenging and daring and isn't spoon feeding any type of messaging or conclusions. And I think that I really admire Mary for tackling these subjects, which are ugly. They put a mirror up to our society and ask us to really think about toxic masculinity and the cultures that engender that. And so I appreciate how unflinching she is. Because I think it should also be said that among Mary's other recent work, she directed Alias Grace, the mm -hmm. adaptation of the Margaret Atwood stories. It's interesting where she always makes these movies, as you say in your review, that are feminist, mm -hmm. but sometimes people feel she's not the right kind of feminist mm -hmm. or it's not approaching it in the right kind of way. With regards to Charlie Says, mm -hmm. how you feel about its feminism, the way that it approaches the story of these women. Well, I think this is a deeply feminist movie, not just because it shows these events from the perspective of the girls. You're not always going to get Leslie's experience of the LaBianca murders. And in that scene, we're very much focused on her face and she starts staring at a painting and you can tell that she's disassociating from the carnage that's going on in the other room. And we don't even see the the violence. And so I think just because it does show it from their point of view, it is inherently feminist, but also digging into the ways in which they were pushed to this place and the way that men exploited them sexually, the way that Charlie just uses them as sexual bait for like Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson and all these bikers and guys. He couldn't have amassed any power if he didn't have a crew of hot hippie girls around who were sexually available. And he knew that. And so he was kind of a pimp. And I think that Mary Heron makes these deeply feminist films, but in a way where she's looking at the bad behavior of men. And that can be hard to look at. Earlier, you referred to yourself as a Manson, a Manson head. head. <laughs> 
what to you is the appeal of Charles Manson, but what's the draw to you? Like, why do you consider yourself a Manson head? Well, I'm just fascinated by the events. And it's so weird. I never know how to describe my interest in Manson. It's like, I'm not a fan of him. I'm not joining his environmental newsletter or trying to marry him in prison. But I'm just really fascinated by how this happened. And there were years and years of events that led up to what happened on August 9th, 1969. And it's such a cultural moment in that it changed the way we live. I recently rewatched Scream and I was like, oh, this is kind of a direct reference to the Manson murders, like bloody bodies on the lawn. Like that's an image that started because of what they did. It's just a fascinating way to look at what was happening in our culture at that time, whether it was the hippie movement, the Black Panther movement, because that was a huge part of Charlie Manson's psychosis. He was very racist and he was basically trying to start a race war. And he believed because he was a superior white man that he would lead them. So that was the the rhetoric that he was spewing constantly at his followers. But I just think it's fascinating the way Hollywood was involved. I don't know. I love true crime and I love Helter Skelter because the way Vincent Bugliosi builds the case, it's just a masterwork in like how he was able to put the pieces of evidence together. I also love like police incompetence and the LAPD was really bad at investigating the case. <laughs> it took them like years to figure it out. We're sort of like heading into this sort of anniversary yeah. summer. Are you nervous? Are you like a little trepidatious about the presumed wave of content we're going to be getting? Articles, TV shows, some other movies coming out, like the attention it's going to be getting and whether or not it's all going to be quite as thoughtful as what we're being presented with in Charlie Says. I'm very nervous. <laughs> you know, I'm that annoying person who will be like, well, actually, um, let's get the details right. Uh, I will obviously be excited to read whatever comes out and to see the other movies that are dealing with it. And I think there's going to be a huge range of quality. And I'm very happily surprised by the sensitivity and and nuance in Charlie Says. So I was very pleased with this one so far. But we'll see how the rest of the summer goes. (laughs) Katie, where, where can people find your work online? I write for the Tribune News Service and LA Times and among other publications like Nerdist. You guys can search for me on Rotten Tomatoes, Katie Walsh, or my Twitter handle is Katie Walsh STX, and I post all my reviews there. Terrific. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. We're going to take a brief break, and then we'll be back with Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, LA Times food columnist, and I think you'll be pleased to learn that the LA Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com slash hungryla to subscribe. And we're back. Now joined by Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner the director and screenwriter of the new film, Charlie Says, joining us from New York. Thank you both for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting us. Yes. And now just to start, I'd like to ask you some questions about sort of your collaboration together. This is the third project that you've done together. And can you tell me what is it that just sort of draws you back to each other? (laughs) (laughs) 
We're so much fun, I think. No, I, I, I think, honestly, I think that's kind of true. We have a good time. Yeah, weirdly, even though we tend to tend toward the darker subject matter, we, we tend to uh, laugh. I think we have the same sense of humor, I guess. Yes, totally. That's a huge bond. And I think that we... You know, it's very important when you're collaborating on writing that you have the same approach to the material. Always this that the same things matter. Do you find the same things interesting or the same things upsetting or the same things funny? And, you know, because otherwise you're just going to be at cross purposes. And I think we tend to agree on a lot of, you know, about a story. Yeah, that elusive thing called sensibility. We share it. Yes. <laughs> and now, do you th- see the three films you've done together as connected? Two of them involve real-life characters who are somewhat marginalized, I'd say, and notorious. Betty Page is a kind of very lovable figure, and the Manson girls are kind of pariah figures. But they're women caught up in forces of history, I'd say. They ended up in places they never imagined they would. I mean, dare we say that they're all feminist films? In a kind of way that that people sometimes attack us for not being feminist enough, but we feel we are. It's something that doesn't always run along an orthodox track, <laughs> but we feel that it's absolutely representing a feminist sensibility. Well, tell me about that. Why do you think that people receive them as being not feminist enough? I mean, that was more probably true of American Psycho, you know, where, where we got attacked for, for doing that film. Um, although I think since since the film came out, it is seen as being a feminist take on that material. Yeah, I mean, it took two decades, but yeah, people yeah, did but- finally realize that. <laughs> I think there is a cliche of women's films that you should be choosing more heroic subjects or more people who are obviously victims or obviously heroes. And I think that the characters we focus on tend to be quite contradictory and their motives are complex and murky. (laughs) Right. And often their expectations. So with American Psycho, the book itself had a whole feminist backlash. I think a lot of people just assumed the the movie was going to be the book. And then in the case of Betty Page, I think people wanted her to be kind of more of an actual rebel than she was. She was sort of this accidental rebel. So people projected a lot onto Betty. And so I think when they saw that movie, other people were kind of surprised and maybe they wanted more a more A to B to C kind of thing. And then in the case of Charlie Says, our film now, I think a lot of people are like, ugh, not another Manson movie. And that, unfortunately, it's going to take a while for the people to realize it's not just another Manson movie. And now, Guinevere, do you feel like when you're writing a project, knowing it's going to be directed by Mary, can you do things differently? Do you do things when you're writing for her that you don't do for other people? Well, this so the other two we wrote together. And then this one I wrote on my own. And I didn't know that Mary was going to direct it when I wrote the first draft. But when she came on as a director, we did extensive back and forth workshopping, rewriting, talking, thinking. It's great to have the director there making me think things through or making me consider things that I wouldn't have otherwise, knowing that it's literally going to translate onto the screen. Yeah, and I think, for instance, when we came to how to shoot the murders, I said, this is how I'm going to shoot them, and really did a kind of beat by beat, like, this is what we're going to see on screen. Because with something like that, you really do need to map it out. And that was for my own purposes. I made, I probably would have just done that on my own, but it was great to talk to Gwyneth and well, let's just get it on the page. get it on the page so that everybody knows what we're doing. Even before I was involved, we were talking about this story and this script. I was very interested in it because it was Guinevere writing it and her approach to it. So it's always this back and forth. Even when we're not writing together, we show each other the scripts we're working on, give each other notes. 
Because Mary, from your very first film, I Shot Andy Warhol, even up to the recent television series that you worked on, Alias Grace, mm-hmm. there's always been this interest in subculture and countercultures. Mm-hmm. And what is it that kind of draws you to that? There's almost this anthropological element to a lot of the work that you do. Yeah, I think it's anthropological. And I think it's it's just what I'm really fascinated and intrigued by as a person, even as a sort of young teenager. Like I remember when I was 14, 15, seeing a picture of the Warhol factory. And it's like, oh, what's that? That's so intriguing to me. Kind of more hidden worlds. And as a journalist, that's what I was really interested in covering was going into hidden worlds and getting entree into them and finding out about them. And I think I have that still as a director and writer. American Psycho in particular has had this just kind of incredible life. And especially considering how difficult it was for you to get your version of the movie made. Has that felt vindicating over the years? It's vindicating. And also, I mean, as Guinevere and I both remember it, people didn't love it at the time. I remember being really attacked at Sundance in interviews as I was stumbling around seven months pregnant and being asked, how can you as a mother make this movie? The director, Kevin Smith, is my friend, and he went to the screening of American Psycho at Sundance, and we had plans for dinner after, and then he wrote me or called me and said he felt sick and he couldn't have dinner. And then he told me years later, he's like, I was so repulsed by your movie that I didn't know what to say to you, and I didn't want to have dinner with you. But then, five years later, he called me and said, I watched it again, and now I realize it's genius. (laughs) Slow burn, like a really slow burn for some people. (laughs) And what has it meant to you to see the response to the movie change over the years like that? It's great, especially coming from women. A lot of women say, you know, I never even went to see that movie because I assumed it was just a slasher movie. And I'm always thinking to myself, so for the last decade or so, you thought that I went from making a lesbian romantic comedy to making an exploitive slasher movie. What have you thought of me for the last decade? Like, I'm never going to make a movie just for the paycheck or whatever it is. Believe me, Guinevere and I, we could have made lots of slasher movies. I was always surprised after American Psycho, that's what I got offered to direct was kind of weird serial killer movies. But to me, it was inspiring seeing the slow burn and the slow acceptance because it means a movie can take years. If people don't know how to take it, how to read it, how to respond to it, then it can take years. But I think my goal, what I would be most happy with, is to make a movie that 20 years later people are still watching and still matters. That's the great thing, really, at the end of the day. And when Mary and I started working in American Psycho, we agreed that unlike the book, which has a very ambiguous ending, was it all in his head? We wanted to make a movie that showed you that it was not all in his head. And we totally failed at that because that's the first question that comes out of people's mouths when they ask me about American Psycho. We're like, was it all in his head? Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a more complicated answer. But what I love about that is that people are debating it. If you make a movie that people are debating the meaning of, then you have succeeded. And I think anything also that kind of mixes genres. And in that case, it was horror and satire and black comedy and different things. Then people don't have a programmed response to it. You have to kind of work your way through it. I have to say, a lot of films I love, directors like Fassbender or my first encounter with David Lynch, I didn't like those films when I first saw them. I walked out of Eraserhead. I hated the first Fassbender film I saw. So, I mean, I have every sympathy for people who don't like things the first time. Sometimes things just take time. And I want to be sure to ask you a question about The Notorious Betty Page as well, because I feel like that's a movie that's really often overlooked. And why do the two of you think that is? I I love that movie. Me too. It's almost my favorite one of all of them. You know, maybe because it's neglected, but I just think it's got such a great central performance by Gretchen Maul. And I love the humor in it. We don't always get a chance to do comedy, which is really what Gwyneth and I think we should be doing. (laughs) And I love the recreation of the period. I have to say, people do love that film in England, and I think it's hard to do a film about sex and bondage and that kind of world in America that is not moralistic, is not puritanical. People wanted that film 
to be a bit more operatic and to be a sort of tale of an innocent drawn into terrible forces. And it's much more complex than that. It's a quiet and subtle movie. And for some people, that's not enough. Like I was saying earlier, they wanted Betty to be this like rah-rah rebel feminist, or they wanted it to be this like super sexy teaserama thing, which it is actually, but in kind of a quiet way. I had always wanted when I was a journalist and thinking about doing movies to do a biographical film that was really followed the actual story of the person's life and didn't follow a Hollywood template, but just followed what actually happened to the person. Because I think real life is more interesting than what, you know, Hollywood will make it. I think this is also true, actually, of Charlie Says as well. Trying to be close to the facts may make a less obvious drama, but I think it's more interesting. Well, to start asking about Charlie says, Guinevere, I understand the project kind of really started with you. And as you mentioned earlier, in your mind, this is not like another Charles Manson and the Manson Girls movie. What drew you to their story? Well, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that once there were the sensational murders, everybody was still talking about what's Charlie doing and Charlie Manson. Nobody talked about the women and what happened to them. And then once I discovered what had happened to them, which is that they were trapped in this security unit for five years. To me, that's an incredible kind of thing to tackle is owning up to terrible things and showing these women not as these sort of kind of simple zombie, hippie, crazy, interchangeable people, but people that we can recognize ourselves in to a degree and people that we could see perhaps how we ourselves might have gotten sucked into it given the circumstances. And then Mary, especially as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders later this summer, Mm -hmm. why do you think this story still holds such cultural fascination? On a very basic level, it is the stuff of nightmare and the stuff of dark fairy tale when someone privileged and happy princess in a a castle like Sharon Tate— And some malignant force just comes in randomly in the middle of the night and destroys you. It just evokes very deep fears, especially someone celebrated and loved and kind of radiant like Sharon Tate. And the Labianca murders, which I found very tragic and is the actual murder that we show in detail in the film. These are these nice people, happy people with kids, and they're just in their house. And Charles Manson chose that house at random. And I think that's very deep in us, the fear that something will come from the outside, from nowhere, and attack us. And then I think that a lot of it also has to do with the fact that Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor and who wrote the book Helter Skelter, he was a real showman. And then Charlie was a real showman. And all of a sudden you had these great characters and the media ate it up. And so it also lived on most people I know were two, three, four or five at the time of the murders, but were very aware of the book as a teenager. And even if you think of the font and the red book, like it was like the scariest thing. Like it just, it got really good hype because of, I really think that Bette Bugliosi really went to town on cashing in on that. And the book Helter Skelter is a really compelling read. And that has a lot to do with it as well. And there's been a lot of recent work, Emma Klein's novel, The Girls, you must remember this podcast season, Charles Manson's Hollywood, that has been specifically about exploring the perspectives of the girls and in a lot of ways deflating the myth of Charles Manson as some creature of pure evil. Guinevere, why do you think that project's important? Of making him, bringing him down to human size? Yeah. I think because it's sort of in a way makes him less iconic and powerful. To me, it feels satisfying to 
tease out for the world. Let me just show you that this guy was actually someone who just wanted to be a rock star like most of us and who just, you know, had some really good skills from being in prison in terms of manipulating people and who also just lucked out. I mean, I like the idea that A, people call him a serial killer and B, people sort of see him as the embodiment of evil. And he was neither of those things. He was just really good at manipulating people. And I think it's also important to remind people that he was... 34 and they were 19, 20, and 21. And that age difference is big. And then when you add the late 60s, they were kind of easy targets in ways that had nothing to do with his power. And he was giving them acid every day. They were hungry and high. (laughs) Yeah. And isolated. The Manson family on the Spawn Ranch were very isolated from the outside world. And it was also 68, 69, a time of growing paranoia in the counterculture. Paranoia about authority, paranoia about straight society. And you take that, you throw in a great deal of acid and a a loser, Charlie, but charismatic loser, (laughs) who developed a great hold over vulnerable young people. And as he descends more into madness, he's bringing them with him. And Mary, do you think it's important as well that like for a story that's as well told as that of Charles Manson, that there still are new perspectives on it? There's still things maybe we don't understand or haven't looked at the story in a certain way before. Do you think it's important that we kind of be reevaluating something like the story of Manson? Yes, particularly because it's being retold a lot at the moment. And the Manson women are known very much from those photographs taken during their trial. That's the image that's fixed in the public mind. And they're smiling and they're holding hands and laughing and they're wearing these bright mod hippie outfit and behaving in a way that is extremely unsuitable for a murder trial. And they seem like smiling zombie hippie Psycho killers. Psycho killers. (laughs) And they're behaving the way Charles Manson asked them to behave and told them to behave. And so beneath that, you don't get a sense of any individuality or, or any emotional journey that they took to get to this smiling zombie place. And so what I loved about Guinevere's script was that it went back to the beginning of the early days of the family and just traced the transformation between, oh, we found a place of peace and love to really a regime of domestic abuse, I think, in many ways, and a lot of brainwashing. And the movie's structured between life with Manson on the ranch and then the life of the girls when they're in prison— And I found the scenes with Merritt Weaver as therapist Carlene Faith really moving. Like, could the two of you talk about those scenes? Like, even just structurally, why you kind of wanted to present the story in in this way? Guinevere? Well, I just found that story, what happened to them with Carlene, so compelling. And I think once Mary came on board, we really talked a lot about how you have all of this sex and fun and sunlight and violence and drugs on the one hand on the ranch, and then you have this really quiet kind of talky other element to the film. And so that was a real challenge, too, to make sure that we weren't bored when we were in the prison or that it didn't feel like a letdown. And I love the juxtaposition, but it was a real challenge. I had an entire character who was a prison psychiatrist that I had written into the story who we didn't need. And it was precisely, I think, because of the balance between the two worlds. And I think when we came to shoot it, the cinematographer, Krilla Forsberg, and I, decided early on that the ranch scenes would be very warm and golden and and moving and visceral and kind of emotional. And those are the memories. And the memories are more vivid than the prison reality, which is cool and still. I thought of the prison as almost there as the afterlife. Like they've already died and they're in limbo or whatever and they're remembering these very intense and crazy months that brought them to this place. Guinevere, you just published a story in The New Yorker about your own 
upbringing as part of an intentional community. And how did that impact your your writings? I'm trying to politely not call it a cult since you didn't call it a cult in your piece. Can you talk about how that sort of impacted what your impressions of the Manson family and maybe you brought some of your own experiences to writing about it? Absolutely. You know, I did grow up in what many would call a cult. And one of the things that I feel I really brought to it was kind of the fact that even if you're living in this kind of rarefied, weird, you still have to do mundane things. There's a big family and there's sort of all these chores and all this work and also the sort of volatility where things can be amazing and fun and beautiful and then suddenly change on a dime to scary and unsettling. I think I brought a lot of that of my own childhood into the story that way. Understanding like the kind of day-to-day, I think, not just the big moments, but the little moments. And then do you feel like that's something you ever truly leave behind? What do you mean? Well, I'm just wondering, and especially in trying to think of it in relation to the story of the three Manson girls, like, is it something that you feel still impacts your emotional self, your even just the practicalities of day-to-day life? I'm just wondering how it sort of impacted, again, your like, thinking of what life was like for them. Am I overly sympathetic? <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you feel like you've been accused of that? Were you concerned about seeming overly sympathetic to them? Oh, I'm very concerned that anyone would think that I don't take the, the crimes they did very seriously. Obviously, the movie is quite sympathetic to them, or at least understanding their journey in that way. I've always been nervous about that. It's literally why I have a character in the movie say, would you feel that way if it was your sister who was stabbed um, 20 times? because I continually asked myself that question as I was writing it, just to make sure that I wasn't losing sight of the hard truths of their terrible crimes. I also, I think, wanted to bring out something that is in the script, and I hope is on the screen, which is that it was life of domestic abuse. It's called The Family, it's a big family, but it is also an abusive family. And there's love and abuse like there is in most abusive families. There's the good times and then the sudden switch, and it's dominated by a very narcissistic and touchy and volatile father figure, which is Charlie. And everything revolves around him. The women are catering to him in a way that was very common in hippie culture. Not just the Manson family, it was communes everywhere. Women are in the kitchen baking bread and they're being celebrated as mothers and homemakers as if the you know the 1950s had never left. <laughs> the Manson story is part of that, but to the power of 10 and with an addition of domestic violence and paranoia. And then, Guinevere, I heard you say that you've been sort of cautious about not wanting this to seem like a work of activism or, as you were saying, something that seems too sympathetic. And yet, the movie is coming out just as Leslie Van Houten is herself a parole again. How do you feel about that? Would Would you like to see her be released? I would like to see her be released. I can say that. I can't lie about that. That's a more complicated question about the prison system. I would like her and Patricia Cranringle to be punished the same way people who had committed similar crimes were punished, which is to say that people who have committed similar crimes but not so famous ones have been paroled long ago. So I really, I do feel like that they are victims of the sensational crimes. No governor wanted to be the one to the one who let out the crazy Manson girls. If you know anything about their lives in prison now, they are model prisoners who started programmed with dogs and they have degrees and they're mother figures to a lot of the younger prisoners. And they're not going to kill anyone ever. I am 100% sure of that. And Mary, how do you feel about that? The film is not a work of advocacy. We didn't make the film to, to try and get them paroled, but we did make the film 
wanting to understand them and to show how they got there. With any of those young people, if anybody had said to them, join our family, and in a year and a half, you'll go in the middle of the night and kill perfect strangers, they would not have joined the family. It was a step-by-step loss of their own identity and their own voices of conscience and their own common sense that they somehow had become, their personal identity had been absorbed into Charlie's will. Dangerous. And they were very young. I have a a daughter's 19 and 22, and I do not consider them really grown-ups yet. And I think that these were very vulnerable young people who were fed a great many drugs and I think behaved in ways that were completely out of character, I think. And to be honest, when I started working on this project, I didn't fully understand that making a movie like this is not good for them. And when I finally did realize that, it was too late because really making anything that rehashes these crimes, it just fans flames that I didn't really intentionally want to fan. What we have done for their legacy is great. What we've done for their actual lives, I hope is not bad. But my feeling was they're going to make these films. We at least have taken their story seriously. And believe me, we also take the victims seriously too. That is one reason why the LaBianca murder is shown in such detail, because I felt very strongly that we couldn't show such a sort of empathetic portrait to their story and their time in prison without having to reckon with what they ended up doing. And that was a really interesting ethical conversation that Mary and I had when she came on as a director, because I had on the page a far more impressionistic kind of representation of the murders, because my thinking was, why sensationalize it? Why relive it? Why put the victim's families through seeing it on a screen? And then the sort of ethical conundrum there that Mary brought up is, well, I 100% agree with her now that because it's so sympathetic to the women, we had to say, okay, this is a really ugly thing that happened and let's live through it in this kind of super uncomfortable way. You're left with these experiences that you've seen on screen, which is the, the sympathetic portrait, the way they all wandered into this cult, the process by which they lost their way and lost their individual minds, I think. And they're suffering in prison. Obviously, afterwards, they all felt great remorse. And then it's balanced out with with what they actually did. To have a full portrait, you need all all of this on the table. And with that, we'll have to wrap it up. I thank you both for, for joining us today. Mary Heron, Guinevere Turner, with the movie Charlie Says. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're all about love here. We got no secrets. We got no shame. Sometimes there has to be some depth of self changes tears are you willing to die for me and that's it for this episode for LA Times Studios and the Real I'm Mark Olson you can find me on Twitter at IndieFocus this week's show was produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heffler we did what we had to do right so baby run and take care of me (laughs) 